All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, this is our first show in like a month. Sorry about the hiatus. I've had a move that went well. And so I'm glad to be back with everyone. And I'm glad to have our guest, Michael Metz, on the show today. Uh, Michael Metz is a PhD candidate in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen, specializing in historical Jesus studies. Um, he holds an MA from Criswell College and a Master of Divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's joining us today on Doth Protests Much to discuss the history of historical Jesus studies and some of his recent work in that. Help break down for us this phenomenon of the past few centuries of scholars that have tried to study Jesus of Nazareth in his historical context or who he was as a historical person. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Uh, Sorry. I'm sorry, Michael. Oh, uh, can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. You're coming through. Um, So uh, this is kind of a we're we're kind of reaching an important event in your life and career. Uh, From understand you're kind of toward we mentioned you're a PhD candidate, but you're kind of towards the end of that. So. Kind of right. uh, yeah, so it's uh, my original deadline was the end of this month, and we're uh, I'm very close to completing that on time. I, I didn't want to be the Ph.D. student that didn't, but uh, I did petition for six more months uh, as an extension just in case in case there was any significant uh, revision uh, requested for the dissertation uh, by by a reader or so we. You know, I just wanted to be prepared. Uh, it it looks like I might need an extra couple of weeks just because I, you know, we're on vacation right now and I've fallen behind a bit. But uh, it's good quality, and my I've got a great supervisor. He's very supportive, uh, Thomas Bokdal, and uh, he's he's been very encouraging. Uh, he's helped me a lot, uh, and it's it's been fun. I've I've really learned a lot. I've uh, come a long way. So <laughs> thank yeah. you. Well, Aberdeen is such a great school. I mean, I, I've listened to read some of their systematic, I mean, all their theology departments uh, there. Yes. Um, there's a lot of great minds at that school. And so, but you're in the States, of course. So do you have to, uh, how does that work out? You got to f- fly back when the, for, is there a ceremony? I know Europe's kind of a little bit shut down right now. How's that working? Um, yeah, that's a, a fair question. And uh um, I've I've never been to Aberdeen, and I'll never have to go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, uh, I will get a PhD from there. It's, so as a it's a research uh, doctorate, and so it's independently. Uh, even even at Aberdeen, it would be independently uh, sought. Um, I do miss out on you know obviously lectures and uh, seminars, but uh, <clears throat> now that we're in the age of COVID and have been for over a year. They they're starting to record these things and they're starting to um, invite the distant students, uh, you know, to to these events. And, you know, I, I've delivered a paper and things like that. But, um, you know, I, one of the first questions I get asked a lot is, you, you know, how how's Aberdeen? You know, it, you know, usually from someone that may have been and talks about how pretty it was. And I I just said, I hear it's nice. So (laughs) (laughs) right. Uh, I haven't actually been myself, won't won't ever need to go, but uh, I don't think that that's um, harms uh, the quality of my work in any way. Thomas has been a good, a good supervisor and uh, he he has a very high bar of excellence and he's very good at helping me to achieve that. And and I'm, I'm pretty driven myself. So I, I work pretty hard and, uh, my wife were here. She'd tell you that I, I kind of obsess and I'm a little uh, 
bit of a perfectionist and, you know, with each sentence. So. Well, it, academic writing, I have found it is very, very hard as much as I love, I have an interest passion for theology, but I personally don't like writing. And so perfectionism <laughs> can be a good trait to have uh, in some cases. Right. Um, so, uh, Michael, we were we introduced you as someone who studies the historical Jesus. Um, and for some of our listeners who may have who may have done some formal theological study in a college or seminary, or, or if they've done a lot of reading on their own, because there's stuff out there, even they've probably come across the term historical Jesus. Uh, admittedly, though, the term uh, doesn't really uh, come without its uh, problems. Uh, maybe for the the you know the average of uh, you know the average faithful i guess uh the, the layman uh for instance in my own story uh, i i first came across the term i was like in college age uh you know and i didn't yeah. study uh theology bible or any of that in college i was a poli sci major <laughs> but i i oh yeah that's i love political science yeah oh yeah but yeah it's um fascinating field i i um you know, I don't, I don't like politics, but I like political science. <laughs> yeah. International relations and yes. Yeah. Uh, legitimate politics. Not. Yep. And well, public, and, public administration <laughs> with a kind of a criminology minor was kind of my, you know, didn't end up going really into that field at all in a way, but oh, you uh, should, you should be working, uh, you know, in the FBI or, right. or the defense department or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that I mean, that was before seminary. And everything. But yeah, I mean, it, I found it fascinating. And uh, sometimes like maybe I should have went back and studied the like if I could go back, would it be theology and history? But, but you know, yeah. I, I look at it and I'm like, hey, it's all good. Like, you know, but uh, but I can anyways, I came across the term historical Jesus. Usually it was through like a Bart Ehrman book on a Barnes and Noble uh, bookshelf. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I'll maybe get a little bit into that later, <laughs> but, uh, but for a lot of faithful Christians who more or less, you know, they, they take the Bible at its word. Uh, it, obviously we know it's not a strict history book, but a book that nevertheless has history in it. Um, so when we read about things Jesus says and does, uh, the Bible's describing events and, you know, from what he did. And so, uh, so what, but what makes studying, I mean, the historical Jesus, is it different than really studying the Bible as a Christian? Um, yeah, so there's there's a lot to unpack there, uh, and I don't I don't want to be too boring with it. So, yeah, so for a layperson, uh, you know, such as myself, when I first got into studies, uh, you know, it was about 10, 15 years ago, um, you hear historical Jesus, and you associate that with the Jesus of the Gospels, and, and that's a good association. We should right. make that connection, right? So <clears throat> Jesus, uh, the marker um, or the term historical though is carries a lot of technical nuance in the academic side and so um, that's more or less the the Jesus that can come through enlightenment criticism uh, historical criticism and then that's the substantiated historical uh, material re related to or about Jesus that kind of makes it through that uh, it's it's a vicious kind of machine, you know, it's the Enlightenment. So you have a lot of uh, strong criticisms. Um, you have you have a lot of polemics involved. It's religion. Right. So there are polemics. Uh, and, and you've had a few of those. You mentioned Bart Ehrman. Uh, but mostly from the the researches that I've been reading are, are very good. They're not in any way. Uh, you know, doing this as an act of 
uh, to be impious in any way. They're most of them are very sincere Christians. Uh, they they don't approach the text from a faith standpoint, and the reason for that is because in university research you tend to adopt uh, a manner of discussing this the way your peers would, and so you want in a in an effort to kind of dialogue in community and by the accepted rules, uh, <clears throat> you know the rules of historiography. You want to be able to have meaningful discussion with someone who doesn't have the same presuppositions as you. So if we were discussing sure. this with, say, a Muslim scholar uh, who, you know, was, um, had a different introduction to Christianity and not a, you know, a pious faith introduction, you know, they, we want to be able to still dialogue with them. John Meyer makes the comment about, an, I think he calls it an unpapal conclave, where his, his dream of, for a marginal Jew and the, his, the type of historical work that he's doing in his A Marginal Jew set, which is now five volumes, uh, is that people just like that, say a Muslim, uh, uh, the Pope, uh, um, you know, your Catholic, your, your Protestants, uh, an atheist even, can all come together and share meaningful <clears throat> discussion. And that's hard to do in these days. Everything's very politically charged. Uh, you know, in the days of postmodernism, everything is understood in terms of an ideology. Everything's a power grab. Everything you say is being interpreted through a grid of this this person I'm engaging wants to exercise dominion is is kind of the hermeneutic of postmodernism. And it's ruining everything, especially the arts, uh, you know, and media. Um it's ruining, uh, it's, it's important to understand that the kind of work that can still be done in historical Jesus studies, yeah, even in the in light of the sensitivity of, of postmodernism, it, it's still very good. We, we can still have meaningful dialogue. Uh, and I've, I've grown to really appreciate a lot of scholars that I, starting out, I probably didn't think I would. Uh, in, including like uh, John Meyer, um, you know, goodness, uh, John Collins, uh, you know, <clears throat> Albert Schweitzer, you know, everyone knows him from. Uh, yeah, I was going to, we'll, we'll definitely get into Schweitzer in a little bit. Um, yes, yes. I know so, he has some significance with some of the lots know, of influence. earlier parts of the history we'll be talking about. So uh, very, very uh, big in terms of influence. So, yeah, um, yeah. I can. I'm Kind of I'm keep sorry. going forever here, but uh, <laughs> so here's the uh, maybe the million dollar question. And uh, for should there be, uh, you know, how I, I said, you know, what's the difference between studying the historical Jesus from, you know, yeah, studying never... Jesus as we see him in the Bible? Should there be a difference, do you think? I know it's that's a loaded question, but should there be ultimately a difference, I guess? Um, you know, I, I feel like I feel like in a in certain audiences, I might answer that differently. And I, I kind of yeah. don't like that. I'd like to have just one answer to that. And, and I'd like to say it is an ultimatum question. I probably I'm not I don't yeah, like. Yeah. Those. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, no, I mean, if I were in an academic environment, and if I was delivering a paper, I would be careful to nuance the difference. But at the same time, I am a firm, uh, a form of, you know, historiography. It's not von Rankian. It's not um, sort of an uncritical history in the way that it was with, you know, uh, in in the sort of the what Keith gets at in uh, in his demise jargon about authenticity. This positivist historiography where we are uh, using things like certainty 
um, yeah, I, I might I might shy back away from that, but I would also affirm a meaningful continuity where uh, even in the you know the Department of Religion or the Department of History, actually, uh, I would affirm this, the historical Jesus as the Jesus of the Bible. If we're not if we're not at least making sense of scripture or the gospels, we're probably not close enough to the actual historical Jesus. We need to be able to account for, and this is one of the things that are wrangled about in terms of historical methodology is we need to be able to account for, uh, sorry, I've got some distractions here. You're uh, fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, we need to be able to account for, um, I can't remember where I was going with that. I'm sorry. Uh, accounting for, um, well, you talked about kind of, uh, yeah. Uh, so the continuity between uh, a historical Jesus and the Christ of faith, right? Sure. The, uh, yeah. We want to be able to maintain those. Um, and then we want to be careful, too, about being insensitive as sort of an academic snob to the piety of, of others. And we don't right. want to harm anyone there as well. Uh, I want to be very careful about that because... Yeah. It's a good thing to be careful about. I mean, and I think theologians of, I mean, all, I mean, all theolo- I mean, whether it's Bible, systematic theology, I mean, that's just something to be mindful of too. I mean, yes, for someone working for like myself, I work in, I work in, but I'm doing it's like there's, there was that tension for a while and there still is, but um, yeah, it's like, some, you know, uh, uh, they shouldn't be worlds apart. Obviously theology should be a uh, part of formation for, uh, the faithful uh, as well. So, um, but it is an ongoing, you know. <laughs> the, yeah, we just, the, I guess, in terms of uh, your historiography, I'm kind of regaining my uh, thoughts earlier. Um, most, uh, if you can, you can think about the different uh, theories of history in terms of kind of a barrier, right? So you're more postmodern uh, influenced historians uh, engaging historical Jesus studies are going to really affirm a strong barrier between uh, the historical Jesus and the faith of Christ mm-hmm. in such a way that it's, you can't identify the two. And uh, I'm, I have problems with that. I, I don't think we do enough justice to the evidence, to the text, to um, the arguments that have been given throughout the centuries uh, of historical Jesus study. Um, you know, that, that do have uh, conservative utility, but we, we, we can't make a perfect correlation, right? There, there is a difference when we talk about the Christ of faith, we're talking about Jesus and his full significance uh, and the theological significance that Jesus attributed to him and that we see in the Gospels. Um, as a Christian and even as a historian, I affirm all of this, right? These are my presuppositions. Uh, however, when I engage in critical historiography i don't assume these things i have to these things have mm-hmm. to be established uh in university research where yeah. um that's why i wanted to pursue a university degree and and not you know stick with say southwestern and do my phd there because it it gave me a forum uh, a more academic forum mm-hmm. um to be able to do these things i you know i mm-hmm. had a class class with bach in 2012 uh, at dallas theological seminary uh, I went there just for that class. I wasn't ever, you know, full-time student there. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, you know, one of my big influences, one of, one of my favorite teachers was a uh, professor at Criswell College, uh, Dr. Everett Berry. 
Mm-hmm. And so he, he had, he, he would assign in his uh, modernity and post-modernity theology class, he would assign um, texts on the historical Jesus. So we were reading James Dunn's uh, Jesus Remembered. Um, you know, and later that year when I took the class with Bach, I had to read, it was neat because it was almost like they were talking, but I had to read the first half for Dr. Barry's class and the second half for Bach. And so it just kind of came together. Um, and it, it really solidified that, uh, you know, back in 2012. And even yeah. back then I was interested in the last supper and, and that, so it's the historical Jesus and last supper that, you know, that's the main topic of my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, uh, we, we definitely want a, a connection between the two. Um, we want an identity, right? If we were doing like a drawing a Venn diagram, right? The circles, uh, we would have the two circles. They would overlap quite a bit. There would there would be unique things in each circle still, but they would still be in terms of a Venn diagram. It would still be significant overlaps. Right. So. um so, Michael, you're the I mean, you're the first biblical scholar we've had on the show. And for our right. listeners, you know, um we we bring different kinds of guests we have ministers we have uh we do bring on academic scholars as, as well and usually when we bring on academic scholars because we're a church history uh you know podcast we usually bring on um uh someone who specializes in you know historical theology uh you know or systematic theology the you know the study of theology proper or or like in historical theology the study of theology is developed in history so um but we've never uh but but um you know, I always thought it'd be cool to have a biblical scholar on a show to kind of, um, cause, cause they, they give us an angle that we can't really get from, um, you know, the, those other fields. So those are kind of the, for our listeners, those are kind of the subfields of, you know, formal, you know, higher theological study. Um, but you know, I, I, th- I think you have, a you have a lot to offer the church history discussion because what we're talking about today is kind of the history of the historical jesus studies i um like right now yes. i'm doing some research on um you know how martin luther interpreted the book of revelation uh right that's um interesting yeah we're, yeah we're, we'll have to have a side discussion it's another time about it is very, <laughs> is very interesting but um but for instance it's not a biblical studies focus because i'm not writing a paper on revelation i'm writing a paper on a historical person's take on Revelation, you know, so, so that's kind of, I mean, it's not the perfect analogy, but that's kind of what we're getting into today. Um, yeah. So good. Michael, you uh, contributed to the book, Jesus Skepticism and the Problem of History. And I encourage our listeners to check this book out again. I'll, I'll, I'll put a uh, info for it in our show notes. I got a great deal on it. I saw it advertised. I think it was Christian books. Um, and I was, in, I, you know, bought his, you know, and, and I was impressed by just the cadre of people that contributed to it. Um, and this, uh, you know, brings me to the, uh, you know, the type of scholars who study the historical Jesus. We we will get into um, a lot of some of who these the past figures were in this show. Um, as far as our uh, current, you know, the past 20, 25 years of Jesus scholarship, we've seen uh, a few of them hit the popular level. For instance, I mentioned Bart Ehrman uh, earlier. And of course, he comes from, uh, you know, uh, a uh, more skeptical view of the contents of the new Testament. Um, of course he's, he's not a person of faith, uh, at least any longer, uh, or he's kind of agnostic in that area, you could say, but we also, um, you know, we also, we come across those skeptical takes, but we also, um, come across people who think that there is general reliability of what we read in the Bible or a strong reliability. And so, uh, like, like you mentioned earlier, there's a whole spectrum. Um, and so, uh, 
so the term uh, historical Jesus would not have been recognizable, you know, for most of history for nearly 1700 years after, you know, Jesus walked the earth. No one was really considered about concerned with a studying a um, historical Jesus. Um, But uh, it's, it's, it was taken for granted that he existed. Uh, But then, you know, we, we get into the modern era and there's, there's, what has been called the three quests for the historical Jesus. And um, yes, yeah. Yeah. And really the first one kind of taken off in the, like you said, the enlightenment period. Tell us a little bit about the first quest. Uh, what were, um, what was it? What were some of the motivations behind it? Okay. So <clears throat> it's taking place right during the early days of the enlightenment. Uh, there's, there's a lot of excitement uh, in this period, right? You had, scientific breakthroughs you had newton um you know alexander pope would later write a poem and say that god made newton and all was made light and so you you really have this uh trust in man's abilities and knowledge and uh in the sciences and uh, um the the excitement of it all i mean i don't want to take away from it at all it was it was a good thing uh newton would uh using he was a geometrist well he was many things but um as a geometrist he applied geometry to the book or to the cosmos in his book uh principia um his his mathematical principia so uh in it he's able to actually um account for the movement of all the celestial bodies, you know, as they would refer to them in the enlightenment using known laws of, of, you know, movements. Uh, and this was a big deal because once you could kind of solve this puzzle of the heavens that, that people had been working at for a long time, um, and you know, the movements of the earth and the sun and cause well, it's obviously stationary, although it technically does move through space, but anyway, uh, this mechanistic view that kind of accounted for the movement of everything throughout the universe was a big deal. And once you could account for all of those things through known laws, um, it, it kind of gives, gives the enlightenment person a, a lot of confidence for, for other things. Right. And so this kind of, uh, you know, raw, critical-minded approach to uh, solving things. And also the the fact that Newton did this within a closed continuum, right? Using universal laws uh, and kind of portrayed the cosmos as a machine. Um, it was very, it was very like deterministic. You could have, uh, you know, a very decided closed uh, space, you know, that could be accounted for, you know, in this way. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it was it was this machine view of the cosmos that kind of solidified the thinking of your average enlightenment uh, thinker um, into just relying on the natural observations, the natural world. Uh, and, and and again, nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, this is all very very good. You you would have you know polemics about God that would come from this. You would even have some pious movements. Uh, to sort of accord Christianity with this, um, you know, new age of of science uh, and, and breakthrough. So you would have uh, so you had a deism in England, right? And that's an important catalyst, especially for 
the Enlightenment mood in England. Right. Um, and, and the Enlightenment kind of it kind of took on a different flavor depending on the country. Right? I mean, I mean, that's true. Yeah. Uh, Germany had its own flavor. France had its own flavor. Uh, yeah. some, of the, some of the really polemical stuff you mentioned. I mean, some of it came from Voltaire, some French people. But I mean, not, not to yeah. say the French out. It was it was kind of everywhere. But, you know. Uh, sorry, <laughs> but no, you're no, right. that's very good. You probably know much more about that than I do. Um, so the, the importance of the, of this kind of mechanistic view of looking at things kind of, um, then becomes to dominate and, uh, motivates, um, both skeptics and the pious to look at the gospels in light of this. Right. And you, you had this very early on with, uh, uh, Rymaris, uh, and Lessing, and um, from following them, you had uh, David Friedrich Strauss. He would uh, sort of appropriate this kind of uh, naturalist paradigm to the Gospels, and and they were pretty devastating, right? You you could have, you know, it was a spectrum, but uh, in terms of Strauss, you would have uh, a pretty devastating criticism of religion in, in his work. I'm I'm not much of an expert on the early lives of Jesus or the early Laban Yesus, uh, but I know that Rymaris and Strauss were very influential. Um, I also know that they were very polemical. Uh, beyond that, I, I don't have a lot. It, they just, because of the focus of my dissertation on the Last Supper, they and these two just don't have a lot to sure. say about it. Um, you know, yeah. you, you kind of, you don't start getting into the real fun part till the near the end of the first quest, you know, at least for the last supper. Right. Well, the, first quest, these, uh, yeah, the first quest, when I think of it, um, there was a lot of, uh, it, it was, I mean, by today's even standards, there, there was a lot of ideology insert. It was, it was kind of definitely the literature that was coming out of it. Uh, and some of it kind of disseminated into kind of a very popular level. It really just echoed the attitude of the time. Right. I mean, it was, a lot of the, I hear yeah, about a lot of these, what they were called romantic lives of Jesus and romance for our listeners. I don't mean like, you know, that type of romance. Like but, my Korean movies. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so, but like, uh, it was like these like uh, uh, biographies of Jesus that were, they would write to, that would, um, you know, we kind of see a modern equivalent or we kind of see current equivalents like Risa Aslan's book is one or some of these biographies people put out of, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but there's yeah. a, uh, Donald Spoto Spoto, who's like a film historian, wrote like a biography. You know, it's like, um, you know, but it, it was just like lives of Jesus, um, you know, the real Jesus uncovered type thing. You mentioned Ramaris uh, and is it Strauss? Yes. So, yes, so yes. What, what were kind of the, you did, uh, they were polemical, you said, what, what kind of conclusions really came out of them about? Who, uh, who, I'd who, like to. I have my notes for this. Um, I'll I'll tr I'll venture a, uh, an answer without having notes in front of me. But um, I think with Strauss, you you end up with uh, you know well a denial of any sort of cardinal Christian doctrine like atonement or resurrection. Um, you know, again these these to go back to Newton, these historians are working within the strictures of the Enlightenment of anything that can be closed and causally deterministic in terms of history. So. This automatically, you know, precludes the divine or God from acting within space and time or, or mm -hmm. taking action, right? If you can come up with a theory of uh, 
you know, uh, the natural world that does not require you to premise God in any meaningful way, then you want to, you know, the, for these historians, they want to approach even scripture this way, right? They, you know, even, even though you have God as such a central character and he's, he's everywhere seen as kind of the man behind the curtain engaged in the events and especially in the life of Jesus, you, you have this, you know, well, say at the transfiguration, you have the Shekinah, you know, you have the divine presence just come and just, you know, uh, it's it well, it's with Jesus, James, and John um, on the mountain, and Jesus is just transfigured before them. Right? This is a, a this is a divine moment. You know, Jesus is revealing his deity. Uh, in Enlightenment thought, you know, you would this isn't something that could happen naturally. You know, people don't right. just glow. So this was not historical it's that kind of idea where these enlightenment principles of history and the strictures that they impose just sort of preclude most all the events in this in the gospels so yeah so so this kind of worldview now that they bring in that at least is some pretty drastic conclusions based on uh yeah they hadn't been nothing like this had been done before that's why it's such a you know a shocking thing um early on uh it's going to be i think it's less seen uh, he was, I think he was a librarian. Gosh, this is embarrassing. I don't know this better, but he's going to end up publishing Rymaris's fragments posthumously. I mean, this is how, this is how serious this was. And it's also for Strauss, it ended his career, uh, you know, after his Laban Yesu. I mean, the, uh, when this takes place at the time, it, it's so impious that it's, it's radical. It's upsetting. Uh, fellow scholars are objecting to this. It's uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you and uh, the kind of theories that are proposed. It's in the, in the same way that they are academic uh, in deconstructing kind of the gospels and any, uh, pardon me, any considered history. It isn't really mirrored in their efforts efforts to promote a positive uh, account of what actually happened, right? So you have kind of wild ideas, and, and we see this even now, right? We see. Right. Kind of wild theories. I think I've heard uh, William Lane Craig say that one of the wild theories about the res- uh, the body, the missing body, was that dogs may have eaten it. You know, one scholar had put that forward as a. It might have been Cross and John Dominic Cross. Yeah, I think it was John Dominic. He's yeah, he he's brought that up a few times. Uh, so, but, but, but John that- Dominic Cross and he he didn't. I mean, he might have got some flack from some churches, and some of the scholar community definitely. But overall, like the world didn't wouldn't shun someone for saying something like that in this time but in in the time of Ramirez and strauss yeah. it was career ending right because this was the this was like a kick in the right. butt to what people you know have been believed and shown to believe about about their lord and then uh this like this this scholarly movement this interest in jesus that rules out anything that can't be naturally and ex- explained through cause and effect um, yeah, so must be ruled I've, out. I've so been, it, it's really a drastic era, then, really. It is. Yeah, it's very radical. Uh, the that's what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to communicate with, you know, the stories about their positive uh, kind of contributions. None of them have really lasted. Uh, you don't you don't really have any don't have much of anything from the first quest. Even the effort <clears> in the you know late first quest period, you know, closer to the time of Schweitzer within Germany. Uh, you have a movement to sort of make Jesus uh, sort of a moral philosopher. Sure. He's, he's kind of a, 
you know, a teacher of morality and, and ethics. And um, even, even that is severely criticized today that to where if your Jesus is just a, a moral teacher um, and you, and, and kind of nothing else, right? The, it, that sort of portrait of Jesus has been severely criticized in, in current studies. So, but in, you know, in Germany at the time, this was a big deal. This was, mm-hmm. this satisfied the need for a Jesus. It also satisfied some academics uh, of, to have some significance on the scriptures. Uh, but, but it's, it's no longer kept. So uh, there may be other factors from the first uh, quest that have been maintained, but I think on the whole, the first quest uh, was probably a failure. Yeah. You know, I haven't really thought about this uh, personally or investigated it, but. Well, well what brought it to an end? I mean. It, it, um... Yeah, that's a great question. That's, that's kind of where I was headed, actually. So the, what actually brought it to an end was a breakthrough and an important breakthrough. So actually, once you do get a meaningful contribution, um, once that advance is established, then the you know the Labanese the first period uh, and these these period this, the periodization of uh, historical Jesus research is is just a you know a, a tool for identifying certain you know times and thinkers um, it's it's not fully accurate so we need to be careful right you know the kind of like you mentioned earlier the the Jesus uh, questing taking place in England isn't the same as in Germany or even France you have different uh, in academic terms, you might say these are different Jesuses, right? We're questing for different Jesuses. But um, so the big breakthrough that led to the uh, the kind of the end of the first quest is apocalypticism. You have two primary scholars who are going to pursue um, an apocalyptic understanding of Jesus. This is huge. Uh, it's and I love it. I love it that it's apocalypticism that really kind of disrupts this first quest period and fundamentally changes uh, the nature of Jesus' questing going forward. I like this for so many reasons. For one, it really demonstrates the brilliance of some of these contributors. Um, you have uh, Johannes Weiss and you have Albert Schweitzer, and the two of them are going to really pursue a Laban Yesu of um, an apocalyptic Jesus. This really hadn't been done before. In fact, in German efforts to really make Jesus a moral philosopher and in light of enlightenment strictures, anything apocalyptic was kind of discarded. Uh, they didn't see any historical value or worth in it. Well, this it makes it even more uh, glorious for Schweitzer to champion apocalypticism the way that he does because uh, one, it's 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 not the faddish thing to do uh, of the in this period. And two, um, and, and this is the thing that I love most, is that uh, this is far before the major textual discoveries of the 20th century, right? This is before we have uh, discoveries in the Judean desert, um, you know, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and other texts uh, come to light. And you have these two geniuses really arguing for this paradigm before any of that. Uh, they're using, we hadn't yet discovered all the pseudepigrapha at this point, but they're using texts of like Enoch mm-hmm. um, and other known pseudepigraphical apocalyptic texts. Most of the pseudepigraphical literature is apocalyptic. There's, I think Charlesworth's edited volumes divide them in two and 
what is one. this kind of a uh, uh, literature? Because these aren't writings, of course, we that you'll can open up a Bible and see, but the writings around the same time period with some similar themes. It kind of explain that type of literature. Yeah, so um, the early Christians were pretty good about maintaining other texts, right? Even texts that didn't really serve their um, Christian interests. And so we have these other writings that have been maintained and transmitted, you know, through the ages. And, uh, and then later, you know, we would discover the Dead Sea Scrolls and then that would even advance more. But um, one Enoch is uh, generally considered a Jewish document with a lot of discussion about an apocalyptic son of man figure um, who very much uh, has a lot of common features to Jesus's own son of man teaching, right? Sure. Uh, he's a very exalted figure. Um, and you you had Schweitzer and Weiss making mention of this. And I think Fourth Ezra was around then too. Uh, I, I might be wrong on some of these details. I hate to say that, but I know one Enoch was there. And I'm, I'm fairly certain that the, the Fourth Ezra was too. And that they were using these texts to sort of as a historical analog to gospel Christology and the person of Christ, you know, this is for historical Jesus studies mm -hmm. and they're showing how a first century Jew can have an exalted uh, understanding of a human being, right? It's been done before. We've seen this and not in the same way, obviously you had exalted figures in Judaism. Um, you, you didn't have an incarnation, right? So that's kind of the new thing with Christianity. Um, and then on top of that, even, even more novel in Christianity is a suffering exalted figure. Uh, the, the suffering divine figure, you 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 didn't have that at all. Um, you know, you, this was a complete new thing. God was holy and exalted, and for Him to step down into creation and become uh, manlike, um, or to become a man and to um, you know take Philippians tells us take upon the, Him the form of a servant, be made in the likeness of men. Um, this is this is. This is unique to Christianity's mm -hmm. teaching about the Son of Man. Um, so, uh, where was I headed with that? So, well, yes, well, I, was, this... I was about to ask. Um, so, based on the research of Schweitzer and this other guy, I don't remember the name of a Vice. Yeah, Vice. They um, they basically detect. You know, if you this whole all this time you these this, all this time the people have been occupied with finding who Jesus really was, quote unquote. Um, has been neglecting that uh jesus probably understood himself or at least the people who wrote about him what we get in the scripture as someone who uh, the end is near right that we're um all all the things he's concerned with doing and saying is is ultimately part of a um you know part of part of something that's there's going to be a culmination of history. There's going to be an end. Yeah, there's going to be, I mean, it's, it's, it's like apocalypse, like you said. So it was yeah, very much on the forefront of his, uh, of his thought, you know. Um, and he's a major player. Uh, Jesus sees himself as the king of this coming kingdom. He sees this coming kingdom as an apocalyptic kingdom. Uh, he sees himself um, in, is this in, in the center of this uh sort of a new new age uh in the, the the age of the kingdom you know or like the age to come so uh, there's a lot yeah i didn't really unpack apocalyptic um how i would understand it without you know trying to nuance it to the satisfaction of every scholar would just be 
you have discussion of an age, right? This age and the age to come. This age is presently, the present age is evil and the age to come is follows a time of tribulation and suffering and um, the day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment, right? And then this, uh, from that day forward, it ushers in this apocalyptic age, the new age, uh, where the righteous are sh- are seen exalted with God. They're um, triumphed over evil. Uh, they they are kind of um, they reign with God with Christ. So you you see this right? This is uh, attested everywhere, and you know we see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well um, that would later be discovered, but. <sighs> I can't help but admire uh, Schweitzer for for put, putting forward this case of apocalypticism in that particular you know day when when it was was it really fashionable to do so. After he did so, it kind of brought a halt in Germany to where do we go from here? You know, once right. you the reason for this was Schweitzer's particular understanding of the kingdom was such that he's going to have some fairly polemical things to say about Jesus's success in actually bringing about the kingdom. He's good at maintaining uh, the apocalypticism, but he also sees it as failure. Schweitzer's going to go on and say that Jesus failed to do so that, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of left on the cross for Schweitzer. And uh, that's, you know, unfortunate, right? He's, he's, uh, he's an odd guy. Um, you know, he, he's a, he was in his twenties when he's writing this stuff, uh, you know, and his teachers are pretty radical themselves. Uh, you know, I want to be somewhat considerate, but at the same time, he's, it was pretty polemical where he was going. Another thing about Schweitzer that I've learned, this is kind of off topic a bit, but it's important, um, is that, what inaugurated all of this uh, focus on apocalypticism for Schweitzer was actually the Last Supper. Okay. We, we, in this day and age, we don't ever, hardly ever come across treatments of the Last Supper that understand it as an apocalyptic event. But for Schweitzer, the Last Supper is the fundamental starting point for a life of Jesus. He writes this in his uh, in his uh, discussion of the Laban Yesu uh, histories. What's that book called? Um, his historical Jesus book where he goes through the difference. Uh, oh, I think it's just called the quest for this. I've never read it. It's a huge yeah, yeah, that's it. It's, yeah, it's yeah, called the yeah. quest for the historical Jesus. Yeah. And from what I've understood that writing um, uh, is what it's, this a simplistic uh, uh, overview is that his writing ended the first quest. I, I know there's a lot more going on. It was kind of, you know, there's arguments saying it, it was kind of collapsing on its own. Uh, that's for true. readers who want to, we don't have time to get into, but if readers want to, Check out, I think it's Martin Kaler also wrote kind of a yeah. critique of the whole project. But Schweitz, you know, so so Schweitzer has this apocalyptic um, interest base. And that, I didn't know that about the Last Supper. I mean, I always, I mean, yeah, as a priest who's who up there, who celebrates and is up there at the altar saying these prayers, I'm, I, you know, obviously I'm not just saying, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm saying and I do. There's something eschatological to everything we do in worship, of course. Um, but but yeah, it is often overlooked that um, at least, I don't know, in my, in a Christian understanding, I see the Last Supper as um, foretaste of a, of the of kingdom. heavenly banquet 
uh, yeah in in, yes, yes. in the in the future in, in the future i guess outside of this you know time and space that we will be entering right uh so um but but it comes to an end and from what i've understood um kind of after that first quest uh because a lot of my research has been kind of in this period uh you get carl bart and rudolph boltman be, kind of become the biggest theological voices after that so we're like the 1910s 1920s world war one uh yeah. changes some paradigm and you have bart and boltman you have this period of sometimes it's called the no quest um that's obviously right. there was still you know bart's more of a thing i'm more i know more, much more about bart i because i'm a car bart fan bart's obviously more of a theo he's not really a biblical scholar even though he writes a a theological commentary on Romans that's pretty good but he's he's more of a theologian Boltman's the biblical scholar so um is it fair to say that there was no quest at all with uh you know because Rudolf Boltman's a New Testament scholar he's pouring yeah. over uh you know the New Testament and he's saying stuff about as a scholar what the New Testament what the literature is who Jesus is but not but what's going on with him and the no quest I guess Right. So the reaction to uh, Schweitzer and Weiss is kind of, well, what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? And so you have kind of a mood set in, in German scholarship where um, nothing is really advanced after that. Uh, you don't, you didn't have, oh, apocalypticism, you know, this is the new paradigm. Let's, let's pursue this. It was kind of neglected. It was, you know, it, it was kind of an abrupt halt in, in that sense. Uh, you mentioned Barr and Schweitzer. Uh, Schweitzer, uh, Bullman. Bullman's Bullman, not yeah. Go- yeah, he's not going to um, really make use of apocalypticism. Uh, he was very much influenced by uh, history of religions, uh, scholarship, which is very devastating criticism of the New Testament. Um, and he's going to sort of popularize it in a way, you know, he was also a champion of foreign criticism, the idea that based on the certain, the the form of particular texts and scripture, we then can know things about their literary prehistory. And as such, we, we can make firm conclusions about prior, you know, history to the inscripturation of the gospels. So, uh, Bolt, so sorry to cut you off because I, I really want to get into this form of criticism thing because I know it's a okay. big piece of the essay that you wrote in them. Yeah, uh, that's, that's but right. basically kind of a good uh, the way I kind of see Boltman is he changed the object of inquiry. He's still immersed into studying New Testament, dissecting, you know, however you would say that, that type of analysis, but he's kind of changing the object of inquiry. The object is not a historical Jesus anymore. And that quest kind of, demi- but it, it's, but he's still, stu- he's studying, he's, he's studying literary traditions. I know that was a big piece of you. you so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm yeah. sorry to cut you off, but kind of tell us a little no, bit no, about, no, about form criticism and what was, and what Boltman was doing with that. And uh, yeah. Well, yeah, you, you really hit the nail on the head. So with, with Boltman, you're going to get, uh, how these stories yeah, oh, came to be right <laughs> that we come across you mentioned that he's not he's going to change his object of focus so that that's where i, I think oh, you really yeah. hit the nail on the head of uh, boltman's not boltman's going to maintain a radical discontinuity between jesus and the gospels the historical jesus mm-hmm. and he's going to say that um we can know nothing 
about the historical Jesus. The reason for these claims is that uh, the post-Easter faith has so um, kind of disrupted the historical material that there's there's really nothing of the historical Jesus left. Mm -hmm. uh, this is pretty radical. You know, this is kind of a, Boltman would even go on to say that faith, that is Christianity, doesn't actually need the historical Jesus. We just need the charismatic proclamation about Jesus, which we already have inscripturated for us in the Gospels. Um, he and Bart uh, are, were both existentialist philosophers, so they're going to use um, this as a big governing category for doing theology, right? It's existential meaning, um, the idea that, you know, the existential significance of being reconciled to God, uh, forgiveness of sins, uh, these sorts of doctrines kind of come to the fore, um, and they're not predicated upon any historical action of Jesus, such that you have a, a I, I would say, a, a complete divide between faith and history. This is a problem, right? This is this this is a problem for the New Quest. Uh, once once you have Boltman digested by his academic peers, they then all are pretty unanimous in criticizing this idea that uh, there's no connection at all between faith and history or that the historical Jesus is something else entirely and cannot be known from the Gospels. This was radical. Uh, this was this was kind of skepticism at its peak, I would say. Boltman, because um, from what I've read, the other Martin Kaler, uh, he 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 tries to say how the first quest big failure was that you know what we have outside there's nothing really outside the church proclamation of jesus that you know that we can really hang our head on besides the church proclamation of jesus um and boltman kind of ran with that because I, I agree with Kayla, but boltman kind of ran with that and said because the proclamation you know because it's only the proclamation of what the church teaches and says about jesus uh, is the yeah. only real data or info and you know and you know for whatever you know because he had a court he, he said you know you've got to dismiss that um so he's that's kind of he's kind of running with what kaylor said but kind of taking it in a in a in kind of a negative direction of saying well yeah there's absolutely. no point to studying he's uh, definitely a skeptic yeah right and uh so but we get into the new quest and um and uh, this begins kind of the 1950s and uh, getting into the essay you wrote in uh, the Jesus Skepticism, the Problem, the History book, which we're going to put a show note in in our show. Um, uh, these these scholars, some of them were trained by Boltman. They um, the they they uh, they they pretty much brought in a new a new quest, a second quest. Now, you're I know you were saying like with. Um, in the essay, this book was response to uh, what? What was the his? What was uh, this book that you contributed to? You, you and s several scholars wrote chapters in this book that we're going to discuss, and this book was response to another book. Um, and what was? Um, and, and for your part, um, what were you responding to uh, in regards to form criticism of the New Quest? All right. So yeah. Um... Right, the divide between faith and history is is a in a general sense the response. Right, that's kind of where my essay came in. Um, this is a uh, important because, as you mentioned, the students of Boltman and, and his academic peers, when they 
begin to digest his work, they are pretty unanimous in uh, their response. Uh, they tend to all agree that there is an overlap between faith and history, that faith, that it isn't just that faith can know things about the historical Jesus, but also that it must know um, if faith isn't grounded in history, uh, then Christianity, you know, Paul might say we above all men are most to be pitied. Uh, we, we have to have, it's a, it's a faith that maintains a particular type of, you know, particular events in history. And if we lose those events, then we, we lose this, you know, the faith and everything that comes with it. Right. And so, um, my, my essay was to really point this out. Uh, I think our book, Jesus Skepticism and the Problem of History, though it wasn't a united uh, voice or effort in terms of um, how to respond to the book, Jesus Criteria and the Demise of Authenticity, uh, that uh, I think it was, oh goodness, Dunn's student, and um, his name's escaping me right now, but then also, um, Chris Keith. So you have Chris Keith and one of Jimmy Dunn's students. Uh, he did the memory book, uh, Ladon. Yeah, Anthony Ladon. Gosh, why is that so? So Chris Keith and Anthony Ladon, the two of them are going to um, co-contribute and edit this book uh, that um, you know has different it, objections to what are called the criteria of authenticity. Mm -hmm. And even in their book, you don't have sort of a, a united voice about what is agreed upon. Um, and, and a lot have said this about their book as well, that the conclusions uh, drawn from that book in the concluding essays, I think that was done by Keith, um, are kind of exaggerate the actual chapters and in, in what had actually taken place. So for instance, you had a sort of Keith's uh, view of the criteria of authenticity is that they don't work, they're useless. We don't need these, right? Obviously, he makes a very good argument for that. Um, but he, not all the contributors agreed with that. Most of them say, okay, here are my objections. So let's say Lawrence Stukenbrook is going to say, here are my objections to the criteria of Semitic traces or Semitic uh, influence on the Greek, right? This is used as a criterion for authenticating history. In this post-Boltmanian climate of Jesus study, um, you need radical, this is what Ernst Kesemann is going to say, you need radical criticisms and tools to be able to pick up discussion and move forward, right? Mm -hmm. Because Boltman's criticism is so devastating. So how do, how do you move forward? How do you advance from um, Jesus completely gone? We can't know anything about the historical Jesus. We only have the faith of Christ. How do you move from that to uh, not only can we know about Jesus, but faith must know about Jesus? Well, for Kesemon, he's going to be the pioneer to really kind of crystallize our understanding of dissimilarity or the dissimilarity criterion. This criterion's getting hammered. Uh, it's and rightly so. I think it, it's been misused. Yeah. There been it's been misunderstood for one um, by many people uh well i know morna wasn't morna hooker one of the first like in the late 60s she was the first to she actually understood it really well oh, and she, she actually okay. had yeah and she had really good criticism of uh dissimilarity and um, now what is her, the criteria of dissimilarity uh, kind of briefly um yes I do so, have a certain question about it but what is the what is the criteria so, right this sounds sounds odd right but what we're saying is that okay since for um, 
okay, since the scriptures are written from a faith standpoint, how can we trust um, a, how can we trust the historical attitude, the historical judgments that are uh, communicated in their history, uh, in in the in the gospels, and the idea is that with the similarity, the similarity maintains that um, material that is counter to the interests uh, in the chari- you know the charismatic proclamation of Jesus, um, things that are just counter to the early Christian churches and their growth and and influence. Um, if we have material in our gospels that kind of uh, don't really square with those aims, right? But actually run counter to them. That's material we can probably trust, right? So, mm-hmm. for instance, if I was, um, you know, I guess a uh, a judge and hearing a case, and I was trying to decide a matter of of truth. If, um, say, if if you know, you would expect the prosecution to prosecute, right? So, suppose that on some things the prosecutor had a nuance. Uh, things that were favorable to the defendant, you would, you would have as a judge or anyone, really, you would tend to trust that material. It doesn't serve their agenda. It doesn't serve their aims. And again, in a postmodern climate, agenda is everything, right? So you have to be able to um, present material that's counter to your own interests. And this is all of Christianity. <laughs> so it's kind of like if, um, you know, it, let's say I'm, I can't think of a specific example, like a Bible verse, but let's say that you come across something uh, where Jesus says or does something. And uh, it's, this is going to be a crude form of putting it, but let's say G, you come across a verse that Jesus says something in it or does something in it. And it's like, well, that's not something that's typical of what the, what the typical church proclamation about him says about him. And it's also not a type of thing. Uh, first, was it the first century Jewish? Was that the other thing? The, the, a Jewish, you know, it's not, not something that would seem to come out of a Jewish milieu context. It's just, yes. it's just there, right? So, like, what's the origin? So, just that has to be historical, they would say. Um, right. So, we know that the early Christians and Christians these days obviously worship Jesus, right? So, if you have Jesus demonstrating the Gospels to be, um, <laughs> lesson worthy of adoration and worship uh you've probably got good historical material an example of this might be that um jesus doesn't know the hour is coming he says the son of man doesn't know only his father in heaven knows when jesus will return um that that particular logion of jesus is generally taken as historical um specifically because it doesn't serve early Christian interests, right? Yeah. You have a Jesus who's limited in his knowledge in this uh, of his return. And if the early Christians you know, are worshiping this person and they, they expect his return, they might shy away from saying something like that unless it really was said, right? Uh, you, you have other, um, and it's, it's not always just logia of Jesus or lo- yeah, logia of Jesus, it's not always saying, sometimes it's events, right? A big one's the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Um, the crucifixion is, is, uh, very devastating for, you know, early Christian proclamation of Jesus. Um, we know that the early Christians were ridiculed, right? We have the Alexa Menos, uh, graffiti that's been, uh, recovered. I, I forget what century it comes from. It's, it's pretty early on. It might be, it's within the first four centuries of mm-hmm. the church, but it portrays a donkey on a cross and it talks about, um, 
how a particular Christian, Alexa Minos, is worshiping as God, which is a crucified donkey, right? So they're making fun of Christian belief in the uh, uh, crucifixion. So we know that the crucifixion was a hard one for early Christians. Paul writes about it. He talks about how it's a stumbling block. Um, He talks about how, you know, this, this is something that... Uh, is the wisdom of God, even though it seems uh, folly to men, right? It's God's wisdom. So we see a struggle with this, but we we also see at the same time that they're not, early Christians aren't willing to discard this. Uh, it was important for early Christianity. It was important for uh, the resurrection. It was important for uh, the establishment of the church. And um, when things uh, aren't, um favorable we, we really don't i don't get the impression that the other christians are are discarding these things in an effort to promote the you know the ideal jesus of worship or something like that so. right and and so uh mike you don't have to answer this but my, my one of my it's probably a common objection is like okay so why can't Jesus say something that would be typically Jewish or typical of early church proclamation? Why does he have to, I mean, why can't the historical Jesus, but um, we don't have time to get into it, but uh, so, but in your response in your essay, so Chris Keith kind of links form criticism, what we talked about earlier with Bolton's uh, analysis of literary traditions and how the things we come across in the Bible, the pericopes, he, he links them, uh, the form criticism with, uh, with the what the new questers were doing with this criteria, you're saying it's it's like ultimately so predicated on it, so it's not useful. I'm I'm, I'm really simplifying it, but it was Chris Keith really saying is that yeah. Basically? So to get in, to make uh to I, I guess to really explain that um Chris Keith's argument is that before I start there, actually, let me say that form criticism is no longer used. That it really hasn't survived. Um, it's severely criticized today. Um, Ed Sanders wrote a response uh, about, um, you know, the transmissioning of the Gospels and the so-called laws of oral traditioning, Um, and he really showed that how a lot of the, uh, what Bultmann argued about um, these, these pericope and their particular forms and the history of those forms he really showed how those conclusions couldn't actually withstand scrutiny. And so um, I think that's book was tendencies of the gospel uh, tra- tra- transmission or tradition or something like that. This was an important book because it showed the flaws in form criticism. And so from there forward, you start having just a domino effect of form criticism. Just one important uh, buttress on it after another is just collapsing. And so the whole thing just comes crashing down. Not much has made it. Uh, you know, so Keith's argument to get to the essay, Keith's argument is that what we use today in historical Jesus studies known as the criteria of authenticity, these actually are, his, his claim is that these tools are indebted to form criticism and that because form criticism has failed, um, these criteria necessarily fail also. So it's kind of like a, one might say a genetic fallacy in that sense where uh, because of because of the previous um, you know version of this uh, discussion was proved uh, problematic, you know that now these are as well. These criteria, these tools are as well. So um, 
the problem with this though is the the purpose of my essay to really demonstrate that okay we're neglecting a lot of information about how these criteria work and operate how they're intended to show a um, continuity between um, faith and history right this is done in in many ways uh, in many of the criteria but uh, to be brief I would say that the claims of Keith really can't withstand scrutiny either uh, right so they they don't share uh, much of anything with form criticism. Um, none of them rely on a particular, you know, prehistory of a form. Uh, they're they're not in any way connected with that. Most of them are pretty common, pretty sensible historical, you know, judgments. You you know things like dissimilarity. If if this was communicated against and if this material, this saying was preserved against the interests of the early Christians. Um, and it proved problematic for them, and it was maintained nevertheless. We, we probably we have a, a this material invites agreement. You know, this is probably pretty authentic. Another thing might be uh, Semitic influence, right? This is a big one for me for my dissertation. This was big for Schweitzer. He had an entire chapter on Son of Man and the philology of that term, and the fact that because this is Jewish, uh, I'm sorry, because this is Hebrew Aramaic. You know, it's Semitic flavored Greek. Um, if you went around in Greek just talking about a coming son of man, no one, no Greek, no, not even a Jew probably would understand what you're talking about. But in Judaism, this is a common figure. Uh, he's growing and in increasing awareness that this particular figure patterned after uh, Ezekiel 1 and, and Daniel uh, 7 um, becomes the subject of intense Jewish interest in our period that Jesus is, you know, alive and teaching. Um, this is a criterion of authenticity. Okay. The fact that we have Jewish ideas spoken in Jewish Semitic jargon, you know, in Palestine portrayed in Palestine, we can be pretty trustworthy of this material. You know, that's pretty sensible. That doesn't really right. owe anything at all to form criticism. Uh, it, Pretty much all the criteria are this way as well. There's there's really nothing necessarily that um, owes to form criticism in such a way that okay, this material is no or this sure. tool is no longer useful. So um, so basically, um, form criticism. Um, you mentioned how it become, and I recommend readers to go to the essay because they'll get there's a lot of stuff we didn't cover out of here, and we shouldn't cover out of your essay because I encourage people to read it, read it on their own as well. But um, you know, it, basically form criticism becomes uh untenable. There's problems with it, like you said, E. P. Sanders shows for it. Um there's a good case you make also, um, you know, and I'd agree with you that uh uh the the, the inherited form critical assumptions um they were they were not so I don't know if they're inherited, but they're not the axiom of which this new method that these new questers are using and they're using yeah. it for, they're not really using it to skeptical ends. these new questers. They're using this criterion of dissimilarity to, to get to the uh, authentic uh, Jesus and any kind of point. Yeah, and you kind right. of point out the problems with um, uh, saying all with the other argument. Um, and we'll, we'll get Chris Keith on the show too. Maybe we'll, we'll let him speak. Yeah, but yeah. you know, but you do you, <laughs> what, you know, I think I do him very, very good justice. <laughs> and he's, Come to find out after publishing my essay, he's been criticized on this front several times. Okay. Uh, so he doesn't seem to be able to, you know, satisfy these objections. Um, he he may make another attempt at some point. I'm not sure, but um, we know that uh, 
you know, these tools come out of a climate that is responding to the skepticism of Boltmont, to the radical, you know, faith-only approach. We don't need any history, you know, so in such a way that um, with whatever the historical Jesus may have done, we can no longer know, you know, our faith in a sense is just in these, you know, kind of this gospel proclamation, the charismatic proclamation about Jesus, right? It's faith in itself in a way. It's faith in faith. Uh, and that's problematic. And so the response to Boltmann is that, look, uh, this is too far. We we need to be able to bring faith and history together. Um, this is pretty well unanimous. And, and it's not just anyone responding to Boltmann. It's like his chief students, right? You have, these are the figures of my essay that I discussed, aren't just K.S. Mon, you had uh, James and Robinson, um, you had others. Bonkham, Bonkham. The born cam. Uh, these are pretty significant scholars to come and say that look, we faith and history are wedded together. They're in, they can't be divided. Now, Keith's objection, one of the biggest objections he takes with the criteria is that they seek to actually make this divide. And that's where you neglect a ton of relevant historical information about how these criteria got started because. Again, in the response to Beaumont, the effort is to show how faith and history actually do interrelate. I mean, Gunther Bornkamp has an entire section in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, that um, talks about the weddedness between faith and history, between uh, the historical Jesus and church proclamation. I mean, this goes on for pages. I, I have a block quote of it. I, I block quote all these contributors to this discussion to really, you know, uh, disprove Keith's claims. Uh, I'd be you know, I don't think that there's any type of response that can satisfy as a rebuttal to to these conclusions that I make in this essay. I mean, I'm in some cases I'm not always I'm not simply arguing something. I'm just showing something that's already there. I'm just I'm quoting these historians on their own terms within their own context, saying, "Okay, we need faith in history. The Gospels are faith in history mingled together." Uh, I don't see a lot of jargon where. Um, in the thinkers that I discussed where, okay, here's how to take these two apart, right? The problem is that they've already been taken apart, faith and history, and it's been devastating. So you had this no quest period, right, for a quarter of a century. And then now the students of Volman are like, okay, no, these are together. Look at this text, you know, uh, it's got faith and history in it. You might point to the text in Acts. It says this Jesus whom you crucified, um, you know, God has uh, delivered to us as a savior, right? You have this, you have a historical event with its theological significance wedded together in such a way that they can't be divided, right? So uh, that really disrupts Keith's claim. Uh, there's really not a way to succeed against, uh, you know, countering these arguments. It's, and it, it too, I want to be careful that it's a nuanced my response to Keith is actually pretty, pretty slight. I think I'm simply pointing out things that he neglects. Objections to Keith aren't always so much from just the conclusions that he draws uh, about the criteria. In some cases, he just it's the things that he leaves out, right? And so, and those things are important to understanding the criteria. You know why that the this historiographical scope that these authors are operating within is one of continuity. They're interested in showing how proclamation and the events of Jesus go hand in hand. So.
Right. So uh, before we close, I mean, again, I, I'm going to put a show note for our listeners for that for that book title because it's a it's a great book, especially uh, Michael's essay in it. There's also some great scholars in it, and so uh, I encourage people to read it. But before we go, uh, what um, obviously that second quest, new quest, kind of petered out too in a way by the you know you get from what I've, I never really understood why. I mean, I know there's a lot of things going on in the '60s in the world, but kind of peters out in the late six. What what kind of went into um, the ending of that? Um, I would say a couple of things. Uh, one is an intense interest in Judaism, right? So you had the post-war culture or the post-war academic climate, uh, which was, you know, rightly welcoming of Semitic influence, uh, Jewish uh, Judaism. We There's a Right after World War II, we've really seen, we've really exposed the evils of anti-Semitism, right? This then leads to um, appreciation for uh, Judaism, Jewish influence, the fact that the Gospels portray Judaism, that it's a discussion about a Jew, it's presenting a history of a specific Jew in a, you know, in a Jewish land, and that this Jew that obviously becomes God's son, he's a savior, or he, he's you know, God incarnate, and then now he's savior of mankind. So uh, that's a big point, uh, right? So the World War II and the, you know, it's kind of exposing this anti-Semitic attitudes. Um, and we see this a lot. I'm actually witnessing right now the same anti-Semitism in a separate discussion um, related to historical Jesus studies. And it just fascinates me. I've even seen Jews write uh, against um uh, agree with the, these this new particular paradigm on something else that uh, oh really yeah this really isn't Jewish this is actually Greco-Roman and I'm I'm just fascinated with it that we can actually make those arguments to say so that's one part of it right the World War post World War II climate uh, the other is um, the discoveries we mentioned right the the Dead Sea Scrolls the other textual discoveries of the 20th century and um, the so this. Jewish interest uh, is intensified in like the 70s and 80s. And then you have a so-called third quest kind of gets going from it. You have a specific interest in a purely Jewish Jesus and making sense of him purely within Judaism. The The effort was no longer to see Jesus as uh, a, to see Jesus in contrast to the foil of Judaism. Right. Judaism is no longer a foil. Judaism is actually the healthy uh, context now it's seen as um, extremely helpful. It's valuable. It's it's uh, it's the chief category for understanding Jesus, specifically apocalyptic Judaism, uh, which goes extremely far in answering lots of questions uh, in Scripture. Um, not not just the Gospels, but other major discussions uh, within the New Testament. Um, yeah, I won't get into it, but there. Are, once you see these things in the light of Jewish apocalypticism, uh, you know, like the spirits in prison passage, and uh, I think it's First Peter, you have discussion on the spirits in prison. I mean, this is one of the biggest, most problematic texts in scripture. Once I had read the Pseudepigrapha and revisited it, I'm like, this is simple, right? This is talked about. Enoch talks about this. We know that Jews talked about this, that we had this particular view of, you know, uh, within apocalypticism that, that discussed these uh, you know, angels in prison. So anyway, um, I, I think that's probably it. The apocalypticism and then the post-World War II climate and an appreciation now for Judaism. Uh, 
this material kind of explodes. You had a mingling of this too um, with the criteria, right? So we can't just say the criteria were just second quest tools, right? They, they've continued into the third quest along with uh, appreciation for Judaism. We see this now in, uh, you know, we see it John Meyer, who's, you know, only willing to provide, you know, critics of the criteria of authenticity like Keith and LaDon in their book. Um, LaDon, uh, Meyer gives them like a single footnote in his fifth volume. I mean, he's not even, he sees this as uh, not meriting more, more time, you know, um, the arguments that have been made against the criteria. So the point is that now that we have this third Jewish quest underway and uh, the criteria um, are being used by third questers as well, it's not just a second quest item. So, well, um, it's, it's, it's just fascinating. This, the three different quests as they've been called. And uh, thank you for elaborating on what those are. Um, they all had different characteristics as we can see. Um, we, they have di different motivations. They have different, um aims uh they and and so and again i encourage even from that book alone that i'm putting a book note in uh, that will shed some light on what all three of those entail and of course i'm sure the bibliography and footnotes in that book will point our listeners to lots of other things um as far as uh all the relevant scholarship in any of those quests so um Michael, I thank you for being on the show. I liked what you said yeah. a few moments ago, where you said uh, the Gospels are our faith and history. And I think uh, for whatever the faults of the second new quest, as it's called, uh, which is really your specialty, whatever its faults, um, at least it, uh, it had kind of that. You know, it was it was kind of going for that, right? And that it continuity was a theological movement, yeah. Right. It was a return. It was a theological response, right? Yeah. Continuity and people like Born Kim. Um, I'm a big fan of Heinrich Bornkem. He's the Reformation Luther scholar. I've been reading some of his. He was the brother of Gunther. Um, so oh, wow. I mean, yeah, Didn't two brothers, two brothers love the church. Oh yeah, read some Heinrich. I mean, if you're into <laughs> reading about Reformation, Heinrich Bornkem is an amazing scholar. Uh, and I'll put a footnote to <laughs> to the Luther biography <laughs> reading of him right now. But um, but thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, for our listeners, uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to be doing an episode on the history of the Episcopal Diocese of Milwaukee. So, um, and for especially for some of uh, ministry and uh, some of my colleagues in the ministry in the diocese that might want to have an interest in learning more about where they serve, uh, we will be doing that. So, uh, God bless everyone. We will see you all um, when we return. Take care. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doth Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel, we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.